And if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to look there in just a moment, in a little bit. It's also in your order of service, and you can find it. But while you're turning there, I want you to think back to the very first Christian song you ever learned, the very first song that you learned maybe as a child or as a teenager or, or growing up, a song that stuck with you, maybe a song your grandparents taught you, your parents taught you when you were preschool age. So I want you to think, I know for some of you, you've got to go way back. For some of you, it's not that far of a journey, but I want you to think about it for just a second. You know, one of my favorite parts of our worship service is, is being able to sit over here and sit in front of our children while they worship. I enjoyed listening to them behind me sing because they sing with such freedom and they sing not caring what anybody thinks, not caring even if they know the words. They're just trying to worship. And, you know, I know people have said, well, you know, during the summer and other times when we're crowded, we've got five or six rows of children and maybe we should have them go out and, and that way we have seats for everybody else. But I would never give this up because it's so vital, not because we're teaching them how to worship, but because hopefully they are teaching you how to worship in the way that they worship in freedom. And it's amazing how much they pick up. I know from parents' testimony, they'll tell me they'll catch their children during the week in their room or doing something, singing one of the worship songs or one of the hymns that we've sung, not even realizing that, that they had internalized it. Because so many times songs have a way of being imprinted on our heart. And those are the way with children's songs that many of us have learned. Now, Maybe you hadn't sung them in a long, long time. Maybe you thought about it in a long, long time. But I know you still know some of the words. Maybe the first song you ever learned started like this. Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. How about maybe this one? It had signs. You could hold your hand up. Say, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, right? And then the second verse, which is always my favorite, hide it under a bushel. Oh, come on. You can do better now. Give away. I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under the bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. I promise you, if I went down and sang that to them, they'd jump out of their seats and say, no. How about this one? This had motions too, and I couldn't do it because I'm uncoordinated. Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing. Then they would switch it up sometimes when I was a kid. And instead of doing one of them, because it'd get faster, which was horrible, but instead of doing one, they'd add mm, mm, and wide, mm, and wide, there's a fountain flowing, mm, and wide. And they would get to mm, and mm, mm, and mm. And so I went home, I thought that was M. So I thought M and M, M and M, there's a fountain. I thought church is the place to be. Fountains of M and M's. We can all do that. But those words, we may not have realized it, but there is some incredibly deep theology in those songs. Red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in His sight. Jesus loves all the little children of the world. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Maybe some of us need to go back to remember some of those words to those songs and let them speak to our hearts again. What about this song? This had motions too. and It was more militant, so I always loved it. The B-I-B-L-E. (laughs) 
Uh-huh. Some of you went to vacation Bible school, right? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Now, we may not have realized it when we sang that, but when we sang that song, especially the part that says, I stand alone, we were echoing the words of Martin Luther, the Reformer, who in October the 31st of 1517, 500 years ago this past October, went to the church there in Wittenberg, Germany, and hammered his 95 thesis on the church door, which became the official Protestant Reformation. What we look to is the start of the Protestant Reformation. And as he hammered it, he, he said there were three things that were significant. Sola Scriptura, Sola Fidea, Sola Gloria. Do you know what it means? Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. What Martin Luther was saying as he hammered those theses, is that the authority for the Christian, that, that our sole source of what is right and what is wrong and how we are supposed to live as Christians is found not in the church, found not in tradition, it's found not in popular opinion, it's found not in what some preacher or some priest said, it's found not in what we experience. The sole authority for a Christian's behavior and our faith is found in the Word alone, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. So what he was saying was, as he hammered, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. Sola scriptura. In this series that I mentioned earlier, we are talking about what we believe. We're calling it This Is Us because we are looking at the foundational beliefs that we have as Christians. And in doing that, we've started by looking at the foundational beliefs that we as Baptists have because we're a Baptist church. And I believe that understanding what it means to be Baptist is important if we are going to be a part of a Baptist church. And so last week we looked at where we started. Where did we get our name? That name Baptist. And the history of where it came from. We looked at what it meant to be baptized by immersion after our confession of faith and why that is important in the Baptist faith. Why that is what brought about our whole name. And we examined the history of it. We examined not just what we believe, but we looked at what other denominations believed. We looked at why they believed it. And I would encourage you, if you weren't here last Last week or you missed it, go and listen to our podcast because I outlined five distinctive things that I believe identify us as Baptists. And I think they are important enough that we are going to look at them for the next couple of weeks as we look at who we are as a church and where we are going and what God is calling us to. We have to understand our heritage, where we came from. And part of that is being Baptist. Now understand, we have a lot of people here from other faith traditions. And I praise the Lord for that. But I think it's important for us to understand not just what we believe, but why we believe it. When I say Baptist, Baptist is not who I am. Baptist describes a part of my belief system. Mainly it describes my ecclesiology, which is a big term to mean how we do church. But Baptist is not how I identify myself. And I told you last week that how I identify myself, where my identity is, is as a Christian. I am a Christ follower. That is the foundational statement of my belief system. If you say, what are you? I, I won't say Baptist. I will say I am a Christian, a Christ follower. But then I further narrowed that system last week by telling you that I'm also a biblically conservative evangelical. 
And that's not a political term. That term has deep theological meanings. And I laid those out last week about what that meant. That doesn't take away from me being a Christian. What it does is it further defines what I believe as a Christian. And as a conservative, biblical, evangelical Christian, I'm also a Baptist. And being a Baptist doesn't change any of those things. There are Baptists that are not biblically conservative. There are Baptists that are not, would not consider themselves evangelical. And so each of those terms are important, and that's why it's important that you gather what we believe and how you build your belief system, because it determines how you live, how we do church, how we act and operate with other churches, and how we live as Christians. And those belief systems build on one another. I'm a Baptist not because I stumbled into a Baptist church someday. I'm a Baptist not because they had the prettiest signs or or did the best services. I'm a Baptist... Because I choose to be, because I believe that their practices and their belief system and how they practice it is the closest model we have to the New Testament church. They don't get everything right. But if you look at denominations and you look at faith systems and you look at how people do church, you look at what Baptists have historically meant, Baptists get it the closest. But the beauty about being a Baptist is those same distinctives that make me a Baptist which is what we call our statement of faith. It's called the Baptist faith and message. It's broad enough that it allows Baptists to be a varying time. We're not all the same. Baptists don't agree with everything together. We don't even agree within the same church. Some Baptists may disagree on things like end-time theology. Even in this room, we probably have four or five views of what's going to happen when Jesus returns, or when He's going to return, or how He's going to return. We may not agree on spiritual gifts, whether they're all still viable, whether or not people can speak in tongues, whether or not that is an active gift in the church. We may not agree on Reformed theology, which is Calvinism versus free will. We may not agree on whether the earth is an old earth or a young earth. And that's a shout out to those of you that come to my Wednesday night study. We discuss that. But the beauty of being a Baptist is, while we may not agree on all those issues, we still hold to those five distinctive truths that bind us together. And that means even when we disagree on all of those other things, when we disagree on some of the tertiary issues, we can still come together and fellowship together and worship together and advance the kingdom of God together. That's why I'm a Baptist. And as a Baptist, one of the most important distinctives is found in what Luther said there in 1517 when he said, Sola Scriptura. Because the very first Baptist statement of faith that was the first London Confession in 1644 said that we believe that the Bible is our sole source of authority when it comes to faith and it comes to practice that faith. And we have stood on that for the last 400 years. Now, if you want to say, what does that mean, that doctrine of biblical authority? Doesn't everybody believe the Bible? I mean, you would assume if you're a Christian, then you believe the Bible, and surely people all hold Bible in the same regard. But that's not the case. That's not even the case within denominations. And it's never been the case. That was the reason that Martin Luther had to go and hammer that thesis and say sola scriptura. The doctrine of biblical authority says this. 
that we believe that the Bible alone is the supreme authority in all spiritual matters. Another way of saying that is all truth necessary for salvation and spiritual life is found in Scripture, in Scripture alone. That doesn't mean there are other things that don't help us in those, but Scripture stands above everything else. And you'll understand as we look through this that the idea of biblical authority comes from all different places in Scripture. The passage I read in Galatians where Paul is warning any other gospel besides the gospel I preach. Jesus praying in John 17 for his disciples. He said, I prayed that you would be changed by the Word of God. Paul tells us how can we be saved? We are saved through understanding the Word of God. But probably the most prominent place that we get that idea as Baptists that biblical authority is important is from what Paul writes to his young pastor friend in Ephesus, Timothy. It's in this letter in 2 Timothy that Paul lays out where we get this idea of biblical authority. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at it. I'm going to start back in verse 10, but I encourage you to read it if you haven't read it before. Verses 1 through 5 talk about what's going on in the culture. And if you read that, it'll scare you because it sounds a lot like what our culture is today. And then he encourages Timothy to hang in there. Timothy was wanting to quit. He was wanting to give up. He's saying, listen, people aren't being changed and nothing is happening and lives are 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 not working and everybody in the church is fighting and we're having problems. This is the church at Ephesus, the same church that he wrote the letter to Ephesus. They're having all kinds of struggles, being distracted. And so he writes this letter and here's what he says. You, however, know all about my teaching and my way of life and my purpose and my faith and my patience and my love and my endurance and my persecutions and my suffering. You know what happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of those. He's telling, listen, I know you're going through tough times. I went through them. I was a part of that. I experienced that. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those whom you have learned it from. And how from infancy, from the time you were a child, you have known the Holy Scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed, some versions say inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now what did he say about this book? First of all, he said it's God-breathed, which means God is the source of this book. These are God's spoken words. Now, it may have been men writing them, but they were inspired by God. And if we believe that this is God's ultimate word, then we have to believe that God preserved His Word from then until now, and that there is nothing missing. If this is the Word that God spoke and He wanted man to know, then this is it. Nothing else has to be added. He said, this is what I want you to know. And because it's God's Word, because it comes from the Creator, the one who took you and I and molded us, the Bible says before we were even born, in our mother's womb, He had plans for us. He was molding and He was making us. And that Creator, that God, because it's His Word to you, He says it's useful, practical, beneficial. Some translations say relevant. That means it is important for us to understand. It's important and vital for us to live. Now what did He say it's relevant for? Well, He gave you four things there. He said it's relevant for teaching, and that that focuses on giving us instructions for life. 
He assumes that when we become a Christian, we come to the Bible to learn. And so he is saying that this is a place where you can learn. What can you learn? How to live. How to live the way Jesus wants us to live. You can learn heavenly things and spiritual things, but you can learn practical things from this. How to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how you can be a better parent. It's about using your skills and your gifts to the best of your ability. It's not just spiritual things. He says this book can help you. It'll teach you. But he also said it's good for rebuking. Now, rebuking sounds like a tough term, but all rebuking means is trying to change or switch you and I when we have the wrong ideas. Rebuking is not so much based on behavior as much as in our mindset. It, it carries this idea that we have misconceptions about who God is. We have misconceptions about who we are. We have misconceptions about how important we are. Some of us think that the world revolves around us. And some of us think that what I want and what I like and what I need is the most important thing in my world. And so what the Word of God does is it speaks to you, it rebukes that mindset, that worldview, and says, no, there's a different way. It's the idea that we saw when we were studying the book of Romans in Romans 12 too. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what this rebuking is. It's changing your worldview. When I became a Christian, when I began to accept that this book is God's word for me, it changed the way I see the world. Say so you used to think the most important thing in the world was, was money or being known or popularity or having things. I used to think that being a success was about having everyone applaud you or making it to the top of your profession. And all of a sudden this book began to rebuke me and tell me that being success meant being obedient to God, no matter what the world said. It began to tell me that regardless of whether or not the world saw me as a failure or as a success, God still loved me and valued me. It rebuked me. He says it's good for rebuking. But he also said it's good for correction. Correction is talking about behavior, whereas rebuking is talking about belief. Correction is talking about behavior because God assumes that you and I are probably going to do some things that go against what His Word says. And so it says that this book will help get you back on track when you're sidetracked. This book will help be a signpost as you're going through life because there are going to be times that you're going to make the wrong turn. There are going to be times that you're going to lean on your own understanding. There are going to be times that you're going to be selfish and and you're going to go down this path and all of a sudden you're going to realize that what you thought was best for you is not turning out. And he says, then you go to this book and you begin to realize that he has a better way. God's Word, he says, will allow us to to be taught, to be rebuked, to be corrected. And then he said, it will allow us to train in righteousness. And that comes to our faith and practicing our faith. He said, this book will help you learn to become more like Jesus. This book will help you learn to pursue holiness. It'll help you learn to to be like Christ in everything you do. What Paul wants us to understand is the Bible is not only true, is it not only God's Word, but that it equips us and it empowers us to have an incredibly spiritually vital relationship with God. This book will point you to God and God alone. It'll point you to Jesus Christ and how you can have a relationship with Him. And then this book will tell you how you can live that out. It tells us how we can live together in community in the church. This is God's spoken word to you and I. The Bible says if God breathed this book, then all of its teachings are relevant. 
There's not any teachings in this that don't count anymore. When he wrote this by saying that this book, this scripture is God-breathed, he wasn't talking about the New Testament. He was talking about the Old Testament because the only scripture that Paul had that he was giving to Timothy, that Timothy gave back to him, was the Old Testament. And those today that would tell you the Old Testament is no longer relevant don't understand that if God breathed this word, then every bit of it from Genesis to Revelation is vital and important. You can't cut any of it out. And since God speaks through His book, it's very important for us to know that we are listening. That's why I asked you, what is your Bible worth to you? Are you listening to it? James says, don't just be hearers, but be doers. And since God has revealed His truth to us in the Bible, we recognize that it must be, because it's God's Word, the sole authority in what is truth when it relates to our faith and how we live that faith out. But that has not always been the case, and it's still not the case today in many Christians' lives. The reason Martin Luther had to take the hammer to the door. Now I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of how we got to where we get here. But you need to understand that this Bible that we hold in our hands, this book, uh, the word Bible comes from the Greek word biblion, which means the book. The word testament comes from the Latin word testimonum, which uh, was translated into the Greek word diathake, which means covenant. So you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But this book, the way we have it today, was put together and codified in 325. So less than 300 years after Jesus walked the earth, this book was complete, Old and New Testament. Now the Old Testament was codified in 80 B.C. before Jesus was ever around. It had already been translated into to Greek, which was the Septuagint that they had. Jesus, matter of fact, had probably a Greek translation of the Old Testament. He read Hebrew, but he also had the Greek translation. And so the early church, when they were beginning to be founded and they were putting together the New Testament, they used the Greek translation. And at the Council of Nicaea in 325, they took those Greek letters that they believed were inspired by God. They had a test, and like I said, that's history stuff of how they determined what went in and what didn't. But they believed as they prayed over it that it was put together by God. And in 325, this book came together to be exactly the way we have it today. And then in 400 A.D., priest by the name of Jerome decided to translate the Greek and the Hebrew into Latin. So he put together a Bible called the Latin Vulgate in 400. And it became the official Bible for 1,100 years. So for 1,100 years, the only Bible that you could read was the Vulgate written in Latin. Now during that time, during that thousand years, what happened was... The church wrestled with how do you interpret this thing? What do you do with some of these hard issues like the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? What do you do with some of these things about Jesus being bodily resurrected? They were wrestling with theology, some of the same things we wrestle with today. So during that time between the Council of Nicaea and the Reformation, the church decided they would hold councils every couple of years and they would bring all the priests together and the bishops together and they would look and they would argue over which interpretation was best. And then the priests or preachers and bishops would come together and say, this is what we agree this verse means. And those became the decrees of the council. But what happened over time is the decrees of the council all of a sudden got elevated to the same level of Scripture. What the council said, what they interpreted, was just as important as Scripture in the practice of faith. And that led to all kind of abuses because 
if you're the church and you're the one determining what's right and wrong on how to interpret it, and no one else can have a different interpretation, if you're infallible, then how can you ever question it? And all of a sudden, these corrupt practices began. Some of the, the stuff that we saw that formed the Reformation, the idea of penance, that somehow you could pay your loved ones into heaven. If you just did enough work, or you lit enough candles, or you paid enough to the church, that came out of councils. And so Martin Luther said, no, it is not Bible plus what the church says. It's not Bible plus what these councils say. It is the Bible alone. And that's what ushered in the Protestant Reformation. And that is what began us as Baptists having this theology. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox churches today, they still practice what they call prima scriptura, which is not not sola scriptura, Martin Luther only scripture. They say scripture and something else. And to them, it's the church because they believe the church has the authority to speak just as God speaks. And so their authority is the church and the representative of the church and earth is the Pope. And if you don't understand in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope can speak what they call ex cathedra, and it has the same weight as Scripture. The Pope could come out today and say, you know that passage that says this, that's not true, God just told me something else, and what he says would have the weight of Scripture to all of those who follow that faith, still practice today. But Martin Luther said, no, we are only going to go by Scripture alone, but that didn't stop it. As the Reformation began to take off, those that rejected the church and said, no, the church doesn't have the authority. Scripture alone has authority. But then they began to say, now we need to determine what we believe. If the church doesn't determine it, we are going to determine it. So they began to have groups come together and they wrote what is called creeds. Some of you may have heard it if you grew up in a faith where you read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And so they put together these creeds and you you would follow these creeds. But the problem with creeds is they became legally binding to the members of the church. You had to sign them and say that this is the correct interpretation of all of these things. You did not question what the Bible said. You held what the creed said. So instead of getting away from what they were running from, they just elevated creeds in the place of churches. And and that had a horrible effect in many, many nations that all of a sudden, as the Reformation took root, you began to see the church and the state marry and become one. Kind of like what was happening in Italy with the Roman Catholic Church where the church and the state were one. We'll see what happened in those places in Switzerland where Calvin was. The creeds that Calvin put together that became the Presbyterian church, he he put those creeds together in those statements of belief. Well, they became law in Switzerland. So if you didn't agree or obey those creeds, you could break the law. In the Church of England, which has become what we would call today the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, the only way that you recognize that a child was born was in infant baptism. That's how the state recognized whether or not a child was born. So if your child, if you wanted your child to be a citizen of England and have a representation of their date of birth and when they were, became a citizen in England, you had to go through infant baptism. As we learned last week, the Anabaptists said, no, we're not doing that. Even as we became colonies in the Church of England, you may not realize, was, was the official religion of the first United States, the Episcopal Church. And in the United States, you could not get married and have an official marriage if it was not done in the Episcopal Church. So what happened is they took those creeds and they elevated it with Scripture. Some took the church, some took the creeds. There was another group of reformers that said, listen, we don't think the church speaks for us, but 
the church did do some good things. Some of the traditions that the church held, we like. And so what they did is instead of elevating a creed or elevating the church itself, they said we are going to elevate the traditions of the church, the way we do communion. We like the way the church runs with a bishop and a presbytery. We like some of these things that they interpret as maybe purgatory. We're going to add that because that was a good tradition and our people liked it. And so they brought these traditions and elevated tradition on the same scale as Scripture. And now all of a sudden, what you had to look to was to say, how did we always do it? Well, that's the way we have to keep doing it. And please hear me, traditions are important. Traditions are one of the greatest ways that you and I can learn to interpret Scripture. We learn what is consistent in how the church has looked at it. When somebody says, listen, I've come up with some new interpretation, the best place to look is to go look, how has the church interpreted that passage for 2,000 years? But when you elevate tradition to the, the place of Scripture where tradition is interpreting Scripture instead of Scripture interpreting Scripture, you get in trouble. And there are faiths today that their whole faith denominational tradition is based on Bible and tradition, or Bible and tradition and creed. And some of the worst things that the church ever did was because we based our interpretation of Scripture on tradition instead of Scripture. Listen, slavery in America was justified in the churches because we looked at tradition instead of examining Scripture. Even in the South by Baptist churches, who should have known better? Instead of going to the Scripture and seeing what it says about the equality of all man, they went to how the church interpreted things in the past and leaned on it instead of Scripture. So you had the church, and you had creeds, and some people put tradition. And then all of a sudden came the Enlightenment, and the idea of reason. What can we rationalize in our mind? And those in the church began to say, we are going to elevate reason, what we can explain with Scripture. If it's in Scripture, but we can't explain it, then it must not be true. Understand, as well, like tradition, reason is important. Reason is how you understand Scripture how you can understand the interpretation of Scripture. I use reason to try to help you understand Scripture. But when you elevate reason alongside Scripture as a means of authority, you begin to get in trouble. Beyond just Scripture, there is a place of faith. And there are some things the Bible says, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. And there are some things in Scripture that we can't understand and explain. And that requires faith. That's what led Thomas Jefferson to put out his Thomas Jefferson Bible where he tore out all the miracles, throughout anything that he couldn't explain using his senses and said, this is going to be my Bible. It's, it's what the Unitarians believe today, what the Methodists believe today. The Methodists have what they call the three-prong. It's tradition, reason, and scripture. And I'm not putting down any other denominations. And if you're in those denominational faiths, I'm not putting it down. I'm just trying to tell you to understand what they put the idea of Scripture with. And so you had all of these different things going along with Scripture. And while they're still seen today, there are a couple of new ones that have come up in recent years. Many people today equate experience with Scripture. They wouldn't say that, but they do. Many in the charismatic experience, many in the Pentecostal experience, They look at their experiences that they are having, sometimes that are not described or extra-biblical, and they say those experiences are, are, are more important to them than Scripture. And what happens with that is they begin to make those experiences uniform. They say, well, if it happened to me, and even though Scripture doesn't say that this is what happens to everybody, it should happen to you. Or you're not as spiritual as I'm spiritual. 
Christian's experience is important. My experience with Christ, what I experience with Him, and, and what they tell you is they would say that the canons are not closed, that the Holy Spirit is still speaking today new revelation. That's why experience can still be important. I've been in a church and had a pastor say that from the pulpit, that what the Holy Spirit tells him is extra biblical. It's just as important as Scripture, but you may not find it in Scripture. It's where we get the prosperity gospel. Now, please hear me. The Holy Spirit still talks to us. Jesus still talks to me. And so, for Joy Behar, that makes me mentally insane, I guess. I have mental illness because Jesus talks to me. He does. Listen, I wasn't mad with what she said about Christians, and if you didn't see it, I wasn't mad that she said, if Mike Pence said that Jesus speaks to him, and because he said Jesus speaks to him, she said he has a mental illness. She said it's one thing to speak to God, but to think that God speaks to you is mentally ill. That didn't bother me. She has the freedom to think whatever she wants. What bothered me is she came back the next day trying to justify what she said by saying, hey, I'm a Christian too. And she justified being a Christian by saying, I've given money to the church, so I'm a Christian too. What happens with this idea is, yes, God speaks to us. Yes, we have experiences, but they never contradict the Scripture. They always are confirmed in Scripture. Whatever the Holy Spirit is leading you to do, whatever experience that you are having, it is always going to be found in the Scripture. And if you can't, then maybe it's not a godly experience. Maybe it's not from God. Not only do we put experience, but probably the most popular that we see today is culture. There are those today that elevate cultural experience with Scripture. What they say is our culture has changed, so there are some things in Scripture that aren't important anymore. Some things that just don't speak to to our culture today. Some things that aren't as relevant today because our culture is shifting, and as culture shifts, we need to look at the Word of God and, and move those things that are not relevant and find things that are relevant and shift and move. But who are we to decide which part of this book is God's Word and which is not? Because either it's all His God-breathed Word or none of it is. And what happens is when we begin to allow culture to dictate how we interpret Scripture, we end up becoming relativist. And I've told you about relativism. Relativism is the idea that there is no absolute truth. Because if we change what we believe in Scripture according to what the culture thinks, it's always changing. What was wrong yesterday is right today, and what's right today is going to be wrong tomorrow. And It's all based on what I want. And we see that rampantly in our culture today because what people are doing is is you have these groups that are calling themselves Christian groups to say, listen, I only teach this part of the Bible or I only believe this part is important. And we're only, there's a group out that says, we're just going to teach Jesus' words. They call themselves the red letter group. And we are only going to follow Jesus' words. And if Jesus doesn't say anything about it, then it must not be part of the Bible. Well, the problem is you don't understand the context of the red letters if you don't read the Old Testament and understand what he's talking about. You don't get to choose what you want or what you don't want. Any time that we find ourselves elevating anything on par with Scripture as the authority over your faith and the way that you practice your faith, you are on dangerous ground. When you elevate a pastor or your favorite Christian speaker or the church or a priest, or a creed, or a confession, or an experience, or a cultural experience. If you elevate your wants and your likes and your dislikes on same level as you elevate Scripture, then you are stepping outside of this being God's breathed Word. Martin Luther said, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. Let me read you our church's faith statement on what we believe. It's First Baptist Church of Blowing Rock about the Bible. We believe the Word of God is infallible and total. That means it is flawless. It's exactly the way God wanted it to be read. It is inerrant in its parts, which means 
For what it was written is without error. That means it is truth without any mixture of error for the matters that it was written. Doesn't mean it's a science book. Doesn't mean it's a history book. It means it's a theology book. And where it reveals faith and where it reveals parts of our faith and how we live our faith and who God is and who Christ is, it is perfect and without error. We believe it is complete so that nothing is to be diminished and nothing is to be added to it. We believe that it is authoritative so that whatever it says is absolutely true and commands our obedience. We believe it is sufficient so that it is able to do to us everything that we need. And we also believe it is effective, that the Bible will do what it says it will do. It is God's inspired Word. God breathed. Now I know I'm running long, but before I close, let me just give you two warnings. Because you just heard me talk about how important... And how powerful this book is. How as Baptists, we elevate this as our source of authority. Not tradition or creeds or even what the preacher says. If it doesn't stand up to this, then it's not true. This book corrects and rebukes and teaches and guides us in righteousness. But this book doesn't save us. We are saved by Jesus Christ in Christ alone. There's a very real danger in some people's faith of bibliolatry, of worshiping this book. I love this book. I treasure this book. But this book isn't my Savior. Jesus Christ is. And when you get to the point, I mean, that's where Baptists are today in some Baptist churches. They're arguing over who believes it the most. We're arguing over words about who believes it better or who believes it pure instead of doing what it says to do in it. If you find yourself questioning somebody's salvation because of the translation of this book that they read, you're in dangerous ground of bibliolatry. I had a man come to church one Sunday here and told me as he was leaving. Great service, great sermon. Wasn't authoritative, wasn't the Word of God, and I worry about the souls of your people because you weren't preaching from the King James Version. So I asked him, does the King James Version save you or does Jesus Christ save you? See, it's dangerous. But then there's the other danger, and that is the tendency for Christians to make my personal preference equal to biblical authority. What happens in our lives is when God begins to convict us, when we begin to grow as Christians, and we begin to change our lifestyle, there is a tendency for me to say what God wants me to watch and listen to and how God wants me to dress and how God wants me to act. Well, that must be normative for everybody else. Instead of letting the Holy Spirit speak to other people through God's authority, I usurp God's authority and tell them, you're not as spiritual because you don't dress the way God told me to dress or listen to the things that God told me to listen to. Now, does that mean we're not to have standards? Yes, we have standards of righteousness and we have standards of holiness that God speaks to each one of us through His Word. But when we step in in the place of the Holy Spirit, we usurp the authority of God's Word in someone else's life and it's dangerous Why don't you worry about you and let the Holy Spirit speak to others? This book is authoritative. So I ask you again, what's your Bible worth to you? You can go to the bookstore and get a Bible for $4. You can find some in there that are $300. I've seen some German Bibles that were thousands of dollars. I saw online that they had on sale at one of the Gutenberg Bibles. It was one of the first Bibles that was published. Printing press. It's worth $2 million. What determines the cost of a Bible is... The binding and the cover and the pages. What kind of writing is in it? And what kind of version is it? What does it have at the end? How many maps? You see, all that determines the cost. But I didn't ask you what is the cost of your Bible. I asked you what is the worth of your Bible. Because the worth of your Bible is determined by its power 
and by its authority and by its impact on your life. 88% of the homes in America say they have at least one Bible, 9 out of 10. Matter of fact, the average American home has four Bibles. Yet 38%, 4 out of 10, say that the Bible is their source of authority and truth. And when asked how often they read it, only 28% of those who said they had a Bible, which is 3 out of 10, said they read it at least once a week. That includes church on Sunday. If you wanted to narrow that down and say, well, just Christians, those who claim to be Christians, when those who claim to be Christians that have Bibles were asked, how often do you read it? 51% said at least once a week, including Sunday when the pastor leads us through it. So let me ask you again, what's it worth to you? Let's pray.